Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip, and we're glad you came along for the ride. Here's a message from friends of the show. Want to soup up your car, but don't want to get your hands dirty? Do you have the need for speed, but don't want to risk your life or get arrested? Then check out City Streets, a thrilling strategy racing game. This isn't your typical roll and move game. You start the game with a slow car, a few upgrades and $4,000. It won't be slow for long though. Purchase items from eight different shops to make your car faster, earn extra cash, use shortcuts, sabotage opponents and more. But watch out, traffic jams, police, and stoplights are waiting around every corner to slow you down. Just make sure you're the first player to finish 10 laps to win it all. So what do you think? Do you have what it takes to win on these streets? Check us out today at www.playcitystreets.com and click on our Kickstarter link to back the project. That's www.playcitystreets.com. Welcome everybody to today's episode Tonight, we are going to be diving into another one of our side quest episodes. We've done a lot of these before, and we've talked about a lot of really great, innovative shows uh, that we have found on TV and a lot of great movies that came out in the beginning part of 2021. Uh, and today, we are going to be talking about a show that one of our listeners on the Facebook group suggested that we watch oh, probably three or four months ago at this point. Um, and Liwanika and Glenn hopped on that like a live grenade and protecting their friends. I was a little slow to convert. I'll be honest. It took me a while to come around and actually sit down and watch the great Netflix show Shadow and Bone. And so we're really happy to bring you a side quest tonight talking about season one of Shadow and Bone in all of its glory. Uh, Luanika, Glenn, as always, nice to see you all. How are you all tonight? Uh, doing ahead, really well. Glenn, I really consider you the, the one of the three of us that's read the books to be our subject matter expert. I only know the series. So I'm really looking for your insight as to things that were altered and changed. Uh, how you feel they how they worked out as compared to what you read. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be awesome. Well, I can tell you that I do have some input from the books that I have read, but I have not read them all. My wife is actually closer to having finished them all than I. Uh, but yeah, I'll tell you a lot about, all about it when we dive in. 
Yeah, because apparently, uh, so apparently the TV show is not just based on the first book called Shadow and Bone, uh, but it's based on two different series of books in the Grishaverse uh, put out by Leah Bardugo. So there was, there's the trilogy, which started with Shadow and Bone, um, and then another duology called Six of Crows uh, that both sort of feed into the series here. So uh, well, I guess uh, we'll start I- there. Let's let's start with kind of the the literary starter of this. And so I have bought the first book, but I have not finished reading it yet. And so I don't have a lot to kind of say on that front. I I will say that it seemed as I was watching the show, I realized after the fact that the that the book series that it was based on were young adult novels. I think that it's fair to say that there are some aspects of the shows that make that pretty apparent that it was a young adult series. Glenn, how how closely did you feel based on the books that you did read and the parts of it that you that you have read? How closely do you feel like the show and the books were in line with each other, and did they both kind of have that same kind of element? Okay, so on the teen novel front, I'm going to say up front, and as not just a reader and creator, but also as an author and a writer, I find a lot of great stories in young adult books. Yeah, and I learned this raising my kids. So not just the the ones that come home from uh, the schools, but the ones that my kids are into, especially when they were really getting into uh, some of the vampire love stories and whatnot. And some of those can get a little bit crazy. So started doing some reading to see what they were doing. And there's some awesome stories in there, like the entire, entire Hunger Games series is a young adult novel series, but everybody loves it now, right? Same thing with Harry Potter. It started out as more of a younger audience. It clearly grew grew darker as it as it got further along i wasn't put off by the young adult label in the slightest i will say that one thing one rumor that had me hesitant on reading the books and i'm kind of going out of order a little bit here is a lot of people say and i've heard it in a lot of circles that if you read the second set of books first which i did which is six of crows and crooked kingdom you're not going to like the Grisha Wars trilogy because it was the author's first set and they weren't as polished yet. Interesting. Okay. My experience so far, because I'm now reading the Grisha Wars, is that that is not true. So if you've heard that rumor, ignore it. But the two book thing in terms of how it comes into the show, the first book of the Grisha trilogy is Shadow and Bone. That's the name of the show. The show is based off of the Grisha Wars that take place over Ravka. They, it involves the fold and all of that. From my perspective, having read the next books, that was in the past by a year or so. And in that set of books, that's when Kaz, Brecker, Inej, Jesper, Alina, and Matthias are introduced. That team comes from the second set of books. They don't exist in the first set of books at all. So a really kind of cool thing from that perspective is what happened for Nina and Matthias in terms of her being captured on the ship, uh, the ship going down the rescuing of them of each other basically uh until she winds up in his mind betraying her all of that is in six of crows as backstory Mm. of what happened about a year ago okay so that timeline puts the start of six of crows roughly a year after this ish and i'm not going to hold them to that because i believe the grisha wars takes place in the course over the course of more than one year but it's easy to muddle a timeline when you're blending it into a show like this But it was a brilliant move on their part because the Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom characters are so wicked popular and they're amazing. And what you're seeing for them is new story. They were written in as a sideline to to kind of bring the two worlds of the two novel series and their fan bases together into one show. So you're getting backstory on 
Kaz and Inej. Like when I met when I met Inej, she was already a killer. You see her first kill in Shadow and Bone. Having read the second set of books before even watching the show or starting this set, that has been so cool for me. That was probably my favorite part was it was giving me backstory for what were already treasured characters in my brain. So I love that. It's brilliant. I want to see what they're going to do in the next seasons because there's two more books of the Grisha Wars before you get to Six of Crows and Kaz and his team. So what's Kaz going to do next season? That's what I'm really curious about. So I will tell you what they have announced for uh, for second season um, is that it's going to be another eight-episode season uh, adapting Siege and Storm, which I guess is the second book in the Grisha Wars, and another original storyline featuring the crows. Nice. So, That's yeah. what I was hoping for. Yep, yep. Glenn's all sorts of happy now. Dude, and Jesper, the guy that got to play him, is so freaking amazing. I love him. So I'm going to dig into my actor breakdown and some of my character thoughts uh, a little in, in, in a brief moment. But I absolutely want to say I'm glad you said all the things you said, Glenn. Because oddly, as much as you've talked about the show, we've actually not really done a lot of download about the show, the three of us together so that we could do this right whenever we talk now it's always recording an episode we're never actually breaking down a topic <laughs> yeah, in this chat. Yeah. but not only that it, it's it's great because that means our recording is more organic it's like we're discovering together and i love that element about what we do uh i have to tell i have to tell you when you talk about the the six crows and the grisha war books and the fact that they've blended those two stories kind of moving a bit of the backstory it's like we're getting the first book, and this is just my take. Again, I have not read these, but we're getting the first book in the Grisha War story. But because their backstory would have happened during this, we're getting a what could have been almost like a what if, nod to MCU. Their backstory took place weaving throughout the Grisha Wars and, and, and then and leading to that. And I think that's amazing. It's got across the backdrop of it. And that's going to hopefully then lead up to two seasons that follow the heists and hijinks that they get on that I won't get into because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But Kaz and his team are freaking amazing. Yeah, I, I love the way that they did the, the Game of Thrones thing, like with where they were kind of like dealing with two storylines at the same time and the way they kind of wove those in, in together was really great. The crows are an amazing element. They were my favorite element of this show with one exception, and that would be uh, General Kiergan. I love, love, capital L-O-V-E, love, Jasper, love him. I think everything about him just exudes cool. We talked previously about how I loved Rogue. You'd actually mentioned that on Twitter the other day uh, when we were talking about uh, Hope for RPGs. And I got to tell you, Jasper, a gunslinging Rogue. I, I love it, need it, want, it, want more of it. Loosely designing a character off of him at the moment, actually, for a game that I'm playing. I can actually share that with you all a little bit later, but I wrote up stuff for the potent the possibility of an urban ranger, like a city-based ranger, um, that I'm I'm pitching to to my GM for that game. And you stole my thunder. You're a turd. Because uh, because I I wanted that bad. Like if I was going to use Eberron's as a setting, and then going to use something from a Mercer's Wild Mount book, it would be going into the gunslinger stuff in Eberron, and it would have been creating somebody like Jasper. Like, I think that would have been awesome. I'm not doing Eberron, so you can still have that thunder okay. to do it later. I'm just going to straight up make a, a ranger who rocks hand crossbows and regular crossbows for, he's going to use a heavy crossbow, hand crossbow, Bodhi-ish, but totally different flavor. 
And Josh can decide if any of that was worth putting in the episode yeah. <laughs> as we chatted about character concepts based on Jasper. But when you started that, it was kind of confusing because I know you were mentioning up to General Kurrigan, and I know you love the actor that plays him. And I thought that's what you were about to talk about. And then you launched right into Jasper, and I'm like, wait. And I was confused. Look, uh, nothing for nothing. Ben Barnes, bloody brilliant. I have been following this actor for uh, more than a hot minute. Uh, loved him in season one and season two of The Punisher. That's when the actor first came on my radar. Amazing in The uh, Punisher. Like, just fantastic. And so much subversion went into this, and subtle subversion. Josh, off recording, you had spoken about how he had to be the bad guy. You knew he was a bad guy. He looked like the bad guy. Uh, if you add the fact that you've been following this actor's career up to this point, of course he had to be the bad guy. But then the actor just did right. a few things in those middle episodes. He came out like a bad guy. Made you and wonder. And then it made me question, like, is he really doing this? Are they turning this? Is it not him? And I questioned myself. That I, It was weird. It's like everything, I was everything there with said he's the bad guy. And then they subverted that just enough to make you question yourself. And then they gave you exactly what you wanted right from the get-go. He was, this is where we say spoiler alert. He was the bad guy. And Josh, I don't think we can hear you if you're talking. I don't, okay. They tried to subvert it. You're right. They certainly tried to make us believe that General Kerrigan, who wears nothing but black leather and has black hair and black eyes uh, and is known as the Darkling and all these things, they sure tried to sell that he wasn't actually a bad guy. But as soon as he started courting the the like pinnacle of goodness Alina character, like that's so when I was talking about how like and being you could, dirty you could tell it. and being dirty about it right um that's that's kind of what I mean like when you're when we were talking about how there were certain aspects of the writing that made it pretty obvious that it was that it was a young adult novel that's the one that I'm talking about it's like because otherwise there is no logical reason for Alina to fall in love with General Kerrigan unless he's the bad guy right. You know, and unless, you know, it's like he's the, he's the, the dark brooding, mysterious, you know. And young adult books do lean into the trope. Yeah. Heart, heart of the poet in the, in the hardened exterior of a soldier, you know, like that, that trope that we have seen a million times. Like, uh, so it's like, yeah, they, they certainly tried to say that Prince Caspian wasn't, I mean, I, I mean, uh, General <laughs> Kerrigan wasn't going to be the bad guy, but, but we all knew. <laughs> That he was going to be the bad guy. Like, you, you are war Josh, you're yeah, warming my soul. And you're not wrong. You, you, <laughs> you're not wrong, right? Like, uh, Prince Caspian uh, was, you know, uh, look, here's the deal with Jigsaw, uh, General Kerrigan. Here, here's how this breaks down. They did not ever turn my attention away from it, right? They didn't do that. But they did lay enough groundwork that if he wasn't, I could say, yeah, they telegraphed that too. Right. That's what they did. They never fully they never fully turned me, but they did make me say it could go either way, even though you're pretty sure it's going to go one way. And I think that and I think whether that was by accident or on purpose or a factor of the style of writing that's involved, I don't know. And further, don't care. I think it's pretty cool. Generally speaking, generally speaking, if it's poorly written. They make a turn and nobody gets it. If it's well written, they do something like we saw here where it could go either way. And then when they finally do it, it works. And that's that subtle subversion of, of expectation. That's never quite a subversion of expectation. 
that subtle semi-subversion is probably what I'm going to coin the phrase as, is what I found to be brilliant. That's what I enjoyed. And let's just face it, we're talking about a very condensed season. This was, what, eight episodes? Eight episodes, yeah. Yeah, yeah eight, eight episodes. Eight episodes. They so, covered it well, though. It never felt rushed, crazy, or smoosh. It did not feel rushed, and it didn't feel too long. We've talked about shows that go too long, you know, uh, or ones that feel rushed, looking at you, Discovery. Falcon Winter Soldier, thank yeah, you very much. And Falcon Winter Soldier rushed a bit there. But these shows that have these truncated seasons, or what we Americans think of truncated seasons, our friends across the pond, like Danilo, he will say that's just the way television is because all of their shows, genre shows, are six, eight, ten, or thirteen episodes. They don't have anything that goes twenty. The the first three seasons of Sherlock were three two hour episodes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that's, that's 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 and, it. And for that's the it. record, brilliant. <laughs> Hound of Baskervilles. Oh my oh, yeah. God, that was so good. That was yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that we do digress a bit, but all that to say, I think the writing and what they did and the way they semi subverted worked well for this story. And I thought it was just, just enough to make me like really like it. And again, w- with General, I love, he comes out displaying powers that are akin to my favorite type of vampire in the masquerade, La Sombra. Win! Like, that's all he had to do. If they never showed him again, <laughs> he would have been among my favorite characters. Because he just came out whooped ass with shadows. Done. You've got me. You've got me. I'm sold. Like, Slices of doom oh, half with Brilliantly yeah. done. Yeah, that was pretty badass. Like, uh, l- 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 no, no bones about it. General Kerrigan's powers are flat out bot badass. I mean, they really are. Like that's and and his his mastery of uh, of his Grisha powers and again his general like moody broodingness like just kind of contributes to that like whole like dark shadowy you know character and everything like that. He and he really is Ben Barnes really is a genius actor. He's so good in this he role. Really he great. really is. And some of those subtle facial expressions where he just shows contempt for the king like in some of those ball those ballroom scenes he just gave looks i mean subtle looks that were just so telling i think it's because he started as a stage actor and that that's where a lot of that comes from being able to give the dramatic look that's dramatic and obvious enough that you can see it back in the fifth row is what gives you the ability to be that expressive with your face and and actors who have always been on film i think they take it for granted so i think if if we're if we kind of uh pay homage to a a former episode and some exercises that we've done before if we were to stat out general kerrigan and alina i think we're looking at a pretty clear warlock paladin pair uh, or do you guys see their? Would you see them uh, uh, standing out differently than that? I think they're warlock, warlock, just different. Yeah, I, I, that's what I think. Oh, I actually think she's celestial, and he's something else. Yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, even an old one, Probably and, fiend, or I would say old one, undying, uh, undying, possibly oh, the undying. undying. Well, because he's he's basically immortal. Yeah, right. But he's not a vampire for undead or a lich. So the undying. Yeah. Uh, I think the interesting thing is when I look at standing Grisha in general, because that was something I thought in my head, like the ones running the boats are probably artificers or something, but they've got levels of warlock, which are providing these other elements. And then you just have to toss on the appropriate feet or what have you. Like maybe they're all variant humans. 
you throw in some feats so they get some the, the appropriate spells. Like some of their Grisha powers need some additional spells to go with it. So you can mechanically find the things that make that tick really well. But I think generally that's how I would do it. So I'm I'm curious that uh, that you guys would all stat all the Grisha as as warlocks. You're not thinking that any of them are dipping into. Uh, ev- I mean, I I could see like sorcerer, sorcerer type powers, yeah. yeah. Like particularly like the ones that are generating wind to go ahead and power the boats, and the ones that are the the heart renders there. Like I can see that being a very sorceristic or even like a necromancer type power or or a bard. I mean, like, I mean, like for real spellcasters, not bards. Like that's, you know. So I mean, well, you could you could do them all warlock. I think though, because I mean, come on, you got the the genie patron, go with an elemental of air, and you got wind blowing Grisha. You've got squallers. Yep. You know, you can take the fire ones and have their their patron be in a free. Yeah. You could also make them. You can make it different. Yeah, ways, I was gonna though. say that plus uh, magic adept. You could do, add the uh, the sorcerer adept. So they get the extra cantrip and they get that first level sorcerer power. So you can pick another fire one from there. I mean, I, I think that that kind of like makes it makes it work. I'm super excited. Why are you excited, Glenn? Go ahead. We could design or someone could, because I don't think I actually want to take this on. But in terms of a way to make it work, remember Strixhaven that got next? I do. You could make the Grisha and their training be multi-class because I could see an Afridi warlock being an Inferni. I could also see a evocation sorcerer based in fire being an inferni i mean there's different classes that could come into this i like it i like it i I, and i'm I'm gonna i am gonna kind of counter what you said a little bit i kind of dismissed it when you said bard but i'm gonna dismiss it further luinica because none of them strike me as bards like none of them have that sort of bardy presence to them i'm gonna counter your counter uh, because we play magic now. <laughs> <laughs> you counterspell my counterspell? <laughs> That's exactly what I did. Uh, I'm playing my blue deck, and here's how it works. I think if you take the specifically the art render who was on the boat, and I cannot, and her name escapes me, but I will look that up because I do have it. Nina. Yeah, Nina. With her, I think with her, I thought of uh, a, a bard, and specifically was thinking of, of whispers. Because I thought if you have some of her powers and then you took the right spells to kind of go along with that. No, not your traditional, oh, I'm a bard with a loot kind of bard. But if you have somebody who's just doing things more on the slide, on the subtle, they have more of a spy master background or something like that. You could actually get that to work fairly well. Nina's mm-hmm. a heart render. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I, I guess I see it. It just feels like a stretch. I, I can't see Nina as a bard. She is a spy. She can adapt to different personalities for where she needs yeah. to go. She's also a huge flirt, and she's got a thing for waffles. I wouldn't barter up. I just wouldn't do that to her. I, I would not inflict that insult upon her character. So here's why I think that works, because <laughs> one, charisma-based. Two, even though they call it heart render, what they're really to- talking about is charming people, changing minds, doing those types of things. Or stopping their well, heart. Well, that's a little different. Lowering so their blood pressure yeah, and killing them. Causing their brains to explode in their, uh, there, bra- in their heads. That, yeah, yeah, you know, that's that it. And in that case, uh, she might as well be a soul knife and call it some kind of psychic. Just give her the magic adept feet. Give her a couple of uh, a couple of cantrips and call it good. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can, all right. I can. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw you a bone. College of Whispers gets psychic knives. Yes. Yeah. She okay. could be a College of Whispers bard because they're spies too. That, that's where I was going. I've thrown you. There you go. All right, now, now, in in that instance, Nina can kind of can kind of take. All that. Right. So, all right, all I right. want to take a a brief a brief interlude because I want 
Glenn threw me a bone, so I want to throw him something because uh, he he needs he needs something really cool that he wasn't expecting out of this episode. I was doing some research on the various actors and the things that they've done prior to this because most of the main cast, this is their first major thing, at least the first thing that they've been in that I've seen, with the exception of uh, of Ben Barnes. But one of the actors in this has been in many things before this, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, and that would be Zoe Wanamaker. She played Bagra. Um, I love Bagra. I was going to bring her up later, but awesome. I love her. And General Kirigan's mother. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> but she works against him, which I love. Yeah, it was a great way to go. Here's what I'm going to give you, Glenn, because this is some interesting stuff you didn't know. One of the things she did previously or somewhat recently, she was in a, an English show called uh, Girlfriends. One of the actors in that show happened to be Mrs. the same actress who played Mrs. Hughes in Downton Abbey. That's more for me and my wife because we love that show. But one of the uh, other act, yeah, one of the other actors in the show Girlfriends was Anthony Head, who was Giles. Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer has acted with this woman before in, in, in a series. And I thought that was very cool. But here's where it gets better. Anthony Head happens to be, and this is for all those who love music and know all the names and stuff, the younger brother of Murray Head, the One Night in Bangkok singer. Murray Head, that's his brother. Oh. Cool. But that's not where this is actually going. <laughs> I'm not sure you know where this oh, is I do, going. Oh, I do. I do. Watch friend. how the... I, I feel like we're trapped. I think feel like we're trapped in a Lee Winnie. No, no, no. This is get this is cool, <laughs> and this is all for Glenn. I want whenever okay. we know this is all for Glenn. Prove me wrong. Prove so me wrong. Anthony Head has two, has two daughters who are both act, actors as well. One of his two daughters happened to also be in Shadow and Bone. That daughter was is Daisy Head. She played Genia Safine, who was the Grisha Taylor and friend to Alina. And I thought that was an interesting. Yeah, I, like I thought that was an interesting circle of cool when we're talking six degrees of separation. That was specifically. I was about to say you just six degrees of Kevin. Bacon, I did. Right? I did, and it was specifically because I know how much Glenn loves Buffy, and I thought Anthony Head is, was awesome in that show, and I wanted you to know that I do pay attention, even though I have my issues with oh, Buffy. Wow. Giles is amazing. And he's a great singer too. Watch the musical episode. Actually, that was part of my research, um, and that's why because he he comes from a very well storied family. His father and mother were both in, uh, involved in the film and, and, and such. His brother, huge theater guy, actually created the role of Ju uh, first guy to do the role of Judas in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, as well as One Night in Bangkok, which became a one hit hunter wonder and an amazing top forty hit. He, here, oh, wait, here. hold on. One Night in Bangkok is not a one-hit wonder. It's a song from the mu from yes, musical chess. It, it's a one-hit wonder in that, as far as ranking... It didn't come from an album yeah, or... And or, Murray... Or like it, it rose in the music charts without actually coming from a group. That well, it's not even that, it, that they didn't put out an album. It said Murray Head has no other top 40 <laughs> hits. He has only one hit. That's what makes it a one-hit wonder. It's not that Chess didn't have other hits. It's that Mur Murray Head right. has only that hit. In the top top forty. This was a fun transgression, and I appreciate the thought into it for me because I I I am tickled. This please, <laughs> but we seriously oh, yeah. digress at this complete, point. Complete complete <laughs> utter digression. But now that we've gone through the fold of that digression, let's get back to the show. Okay, so let's let's carry on here. So one of the things that I liked most about this show was just 
the overall feeling of the world that these characters live in. And that's something that we've been talking about a lot. So uh, uh, for a spoiler alert for those out there in the audience, I might be hearing this for the first time, but we've been talking about putting together a tabletop journeys award show coming up soon. There'll be more details on that coming out forward. But one of the categories that we were talking about was best new universe or world uh, uh, that's, that stories were happening in. And this was absolutely one of our favorites of, of that handful of, uh, of shows that we were, uh, that we were talking about. Um, that you kind haven't of even introduced Ketterdam yet. Yeah, I, exactly. Exactly. So it seems like this is a really, really rich universe. And so Glenn, that's actually kind of, that's kind of where I was going to go with this is that as rich as the sh- as the setting of these eight episodes was, how does it compare to the setting uh, from from the books? How did they elaborate a lot and bring the setting to life, or is the setting in the books this rich? My impression of the overall world, and as an author who's tried to build their own world and write novels about it, I can. It's a common, common, common thing. You will know more about your world than anybody ever does, and that's the sign of good world building to have enough culture that you can give the pieces and the specifics to make it sell and sound real. You have to actually know a whole lot more about what you've planned and come up with behind it in terms of the way your countries interact, etc. But I will also say that in this instance, um, if you, if you get into reading the books or when you really start looking at the different cultures set up in the books, Lee Bardugo has basically borrowed from what she knew, which is a common writing thing, our current common world and taken cultures from around the world, our world, reflavored them with a different name and some minor differences in the way that she's populated her world, which makes total sense because you're basically just saying, all right. If the world evolved slightly differently, this is kind of what would what would come up. But by doing that, the 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 lines and parallels that she creates add realism because you can automatically relate to the concept of the the little Suli girl because of the way her raising and her family and her culture is described. It's very similar. I'm not going to give away how any of the my take on how any of them match up because I don't want that to be con- misconstrued in any way. But the lines are obvious that she drew to modern cultures around our world, but she did it well enough without making it blatant. So it's like, oh, that she doesn't break your, she does not break your uh, suspensive disbelief. You stay sold on this being another world, even though the, you know, the light skinned, redheaded, folk are still coming from a highland cliffside kind of area it's still totally different than ours but it makes sense you'll make automatic connections in your brain to different cultures and things that you've already experienced which lets the story come more into you know your mind and become more personal she did a great job it's the short version but she didn't have to invent it all so it's kind of a pro and a con you allude to something that i had written down in my notes and i'm I'm, i wasn't really sure kind of how to get into this because i'm not I'm not totally sure if it's a plus or a negative for the show, but so they, they make mention numerous times kind of uh, when they talk to Alina or talk about Alina more than anything else, that she is, that she's not of the same race than the majority she's of the people that are right. She's shoe. That's kind of where it stops. They never really in the show. Anyway, they never really get into who the shoe are, why Alina being shoe is, 
I'm not even sure that it's, it's I guess it, it's looked down upon that she is. It is. She's there's considered, some racism she's going considered, on there. Yeah, there's some there's some casual racism there. To um, introduce more in the books, it gives you more yeah. detail. And so right, and so that's kind of where I wonder, like, do you think that they're going to get more into that in other series, or is it, or or do you even think that the way that they just kind of like touched on it and then let it go in the TV show was better than it was in the books? See, I'm not so sure that they let it go in the show. I think what they did is they gave us a very real depiction of how racism works coming from the perspective of a person who is of the type that deals with as the object of racism, often to not so often, depending on where a matter of the circumstances, I can say that that is very accurate to my experience, right? It's not exactly the same, but it is accurate to my experience. You get the casual things. You get that oh, well, you're just that. To quote something that was in a different show that we'll talk about uh, in a different episode, but a conversation I have with the Marvelous Madams, you shouldn't even be in the room, or why are you even in the room, comes to mind. But that's really all that I usually get. In the year 2021, I don't often get, and this is going to sound terrible because I'm not trying to qualify or quantify types of racism. There's no scale of racism. It is what it is, right? But I don't get the experience of the, you can't come in these doors, you can't sit at this table. I don't get that. What I get is the look at the grocery store. What I get is the, when I was a teenager uh, and a bunch of our friends would be out, we'd go into a store, I get followed, they don't. That's what I get. True and, story. You know, Glenn, you've been with me, you've seen it happen. And, and and I used to joke about it and cast it off like it wasn't much of a, a, a thing, but that's the experience that I have. No, we all joked about it when we were younger because that's how we dealt with it. It bothered us that you were treated that way, but that's how we joked about it. We used to make jokes like, oh, well, if the cops ever roll up on us doing something we shouldn't be doing, we can just like grab our eye and go, oh, my eye, and Lee will get arrested and we'll all be fine. <laughs> and we said this in jest because it's kind of what made us all more okay with it, but it was kind of horrifying that our friend was treated as badly as he was. It is something that I find as a plus in a series like this, because when Glenn was talking about suspension of disbelief, that's where you get it from. If they didn't have all these people of various races and there was no racism at all, that is an experience in a world that I've never lived in. I don't know who lives in that world, to be honest with you, because I have also seen people who are older Italian people who grew up in the 50s who they couldn't go certain places without getting the look or being followed in the store. And that's just because they were Italian. And and 20 years before that, an Irishman couldn't go into a, a bookstore or whatever, as long as they looked traditionally Irish. So our real life experiences as people lends itself to what we saw in this show. And I think that's a plus in helping us believe and feel and get into the lives of these characters. I can also say that something you're missing in the show that you get from the books, because they try to show it to you, but a Grisha that denies their powers is sickly. Like their power feeds them to it, makes them stronger, extends their life. That's why the powerful ones live so long. Denying your power makes you frail, right? So they kind of tried to show this in Alina when she's in her army gear and she, but it really just comes off as military versus later on, you know, getting a makeover and being pretty. But in the books, it's much more dramatic than that as she begins to change because her whole life she's been denying her power and it makes her 
frail. The other guys in the unit that uh, that Mal hangs out with, their nickname for her is Sticks because she's skin and bones. She always has bags under her eyes. So it's not just that she's shoe. She also is like this sickly reject. And that's the way she's treated too. So it's more than just racism, for okay. in instance, uh, because in reading the stories, the shoe racism isn't like Ravka wide. That depends. It's kind of individual based, just like some people in one country might love people from another, but others hate them. But there's definitely some kind of uh, previous negative relationship with the sh- between Shu and Ravka, and that's kind of what it's telling you. But we don't have details about it yet. But in the book, the the mistreatment of Alina isn't just based off of that. It's also based off of the fact that you know she looks like she's she might be catching, like literally, she looks like she's sick and frail and weak all the time until she starts using her power, and then she becomes more healthy the bags fade stops being so skin and bones she begins to take on the glow of the grisha grisha are always pretty that's a that's like a feature and a factor if you like read into the book and notice it it's part of the power not necessarily pretty conventionally but their power feeds them and gives them this glow and confidence i would love for them to explore that in greater detail in an upcoming uh season note to netflix at least from the guys here at TTJ, uh, please get on, right on that. M- make sure that's in there. Uh, hashtag call your boys TTJ. <laughs> it's one of the coolest things about the way the, the author designed the power, I thought, in terms of, because it's not something that's ever straight up said in the beginning, like outright. Uh, okay. So you, you, uh, you broached the topic of Mal a little bit while you were, uh, while you were talking uh, about, uh, about Alina there. Um, what do we think of Mal's character? Like what, how is, uh, you know, I mean, look, straight up sort of properly built ranger tracker character, you know, has this, has this, uh, puppy. It's, 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 I mean, it's billed as sort of like a puppy love relationship with Alina, kind of like a, are, are they like in a brother sister type role or do they have this kind of like young nascent, like young love sort of thing going on? But I thought that the way that, uh, that Archie Renault portrayed Mal's character was just amazing. Like just, so much passion in that character like oh my goodness just like every time he was on screen he just stole yeah. it like it was a, it was and and he was he was competing with some super strong actors on uh every time he was there and and for him to go ahead and kind of just command a seat like i think about like when when he was in the little palace um and you know when they had brought him in and how he just like just his presence there just kind of sucked the air out of the out of the room for everybody everyone's like we do not want him here he is trouble (laughs) he is not he is going he is going to mess up our plans like we can't have this absolutely amazing when he was in his big scene with uh, Ben Barnes and you've got Mal and the general and, and they're arguing over the letter. And we, as the audience know that he just, I mean, just missed Alina by moments or what have you. Uh, and we know for a fact that the general has figured out their little thing. And this is where the general formulates his plan on how to win over Alina. That was so brilliant. There's so much undercurrent to that scene. We've we've said it before, and we've got multiple seasons on other shows and other appearances of Ben Barnes. He's the real deal. He's the freaking real deal. And so you've got Archie Renault, who is fairly new. Like I went and looked at his IMDb, and this is not a downing. This is just the fact that this actor has not done a whole lot, but he clearly brought it. He's got huge things in his future. Huge. He's going to be on a serious other level in a very, in very short order. 
He's already got other projects that he's already already in the can and already online up to do that we're going to start seeing him a lot more, and reasonably so. Your original question, since I bypassed it entirely with my glowing praise for the actor, is this. Mal is a great character. Like, I play generally two different types of characters. I either play characters who fall into that uh, Kaz Brecker point of view, that roguish point of view, uh, and I'll do Shades of Jasper on that, or I'll play the, the everyday man, the common man. I want to play that guy who doesn't have the flashy powers, who doesn't have all the best of the best, who didn't come from the greatest upbringing, that common, I'm getting it done because I have the conviction and the, the good heart. You have three archetypes, Lee. Your third one is some form of paladin. In okay, it, yeah. fair enough. And usually all of those others become that. Thank you. I do like a paladin. No no lie. Glenn is, is correct. And I agree totally. I mean, the character is, I'm hoping, going to develop a little bit more because he's a little bit two-dimensional, but that's important for his trope. It's powerful because he portrays it so well. He didn't realize how important Alina was to him until he started to truly lose her. And th that the immense, like, passionate change in his character from that moment. Now, mind you, he already really dug her, but he wasn't, he had friend zoned her, and he wasn't really realizing how important she truly was until it looked like he might lose her. And even though he was terrified because suddenly she was a Grisha, completely alien to him, and that's kind of what was his wake-up call. He, she, she was still as, as the center of what he needed in order to function. And his, he's so driven. Mal's character is indomitable because it's not that he's fearless. It's that he won't let fear stop him. And the actor does put that in every scene. I mean, he'll stand right there, nose to nose, talking to the Darkling. And he doesn't act like a timid yeah, schoolboy. The only person on film, other than, than uh, the general's mother, who didn't speak to him with some form of reverence. Even the king hat was back on its heels when dealing with the general. And I think that says a lot about, about the character. Yeah. And he, I mean, he grew up fighting, you know, so part of it might be brain damage, but part of it might just be, you know, a big set of brass balls. Man. Some days that's what it takes better to be lucky than smart. Cause I mean, intelligence, I wouldn't say that it's a dump stat for Mal. He's not unintelligent. He's wiser than he is smart. Yes. Correct. His wisdom is he's, he's a ranger, man. He's, he's a classic ranger. He's, he's got more wisdom going on for him than he's got actual uh, street smarts or yep, absolutely. intelligent smarts. We have danced around this character now a couple of times, and I know that it is a favorite of both of yours. What about Jesper? I, I think that the way that Jesper's character is portrayed on screen as that sort of super capable and yet also the comedic thief artful dodger type role is just flat out hysterical. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Like the, the whole bit with the goat when they, when they're going through, um, uh, going through the fold and like, why do you need the goat? What's wrong with the, what do you do with the goat? You know, it's like that, that whole, uh, that was hysterical. Just his ability to like, to get things done again, kind of like in that artful dodger kind of way where it's like, give me six hours Give me 10 gold pieces. I'm going to come back with 20 gold pieces and the white coal that you need. It'll be fine. Right. But not enough. It's just a, it's an amazing character. 
Yeah, yeah, because shit still went wrong. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's also got that aspect of him too, right? Is that that, that like like he's he is an imperfect thief. He is an imperfect. Right. He's, rogue. he's he's got a gambling addiction too. That's that's where the money went. He had to steal it because he gambled yeah. all the money. But away. let's be honest. How many of us playing whatever character we're playing, and I have played this type of character many, many times. For those of you who sat at me at an Alana's table, this was the type of character that Razam II started with before he went down his, his uh, and before he took his turn ha- halfway through, right? But he was the rogue. He was the confident one. He was the one that, like, brash, did all the things. But how many of you got to that point where this is my wheelhouse? I get the money. I get the things. I get the cart. I can do all this. And then you roll that 20 and all of a sudden the, the clickety-clack Matherot comes up one and you're like, so we're going to go with plan B and you roll it out and you, get, you, know, oh, yeah. you know, Jasper yeah. is the epitome of I failed forward. That is what I love about the character. Yeah, I- <laughs> I, totally. I think they wind up on plan J before they stop counting in Six of Crows. Yeah. Let me tell you, in the show, when he had to go get the wagon, and he went down there and talked to the uh, the stable boy whom he had previously locked eyes with. He knew exactly what to do in that moment. And he most certainly did not roll a one with that encounter. <laughs> oh, no. But he, he also just happened to steal the cart that had Alina yeah. in the trunk. <laughs> like, let's- well, well, he'd already yeah. stolen the cart. Right. And that's one of the best things about that whole episode is the plan went oh, to hard, hard. Right. So that's that's why it spoke so well to Kaz and his team, because the plan always goes haywire. But Kaz always has more plans. Sometimes he gets saved by luck. And in this instance, they've totally botched their plan to kidnap her. And Jesper's outside with the coach and she comes out because she's trying to escape. Now she's realized General Kurrigan is a bad dude. She wants out and she climbs into their trunk and locks herself in. And Jesper's like, what the? Did that really just happen? Did that really just happen? Yeah. And he sold that so well, just with his expression. He's like, and the best part is, he played it off to the rest of them like it was on purpose. Like he knew what he was yeah. doing the whole time. That, by the way, is why yeah. I say Rogue's gonna rogue because he absolutely did it. They're at the end there. They're they're driving away in the coach, and he knows they're in the trunk, and they don't. And Cass and and Cass is like, so we didn't get her. We failed or something. And Jesper's like, but did we? And everybody's just looking at him, and he's like, "Ask me, ask come me. on, yeah. ask me." Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, brilliant. I read somewhere that if you're going to do a heist, there's two ways to do it. If you want everything to go wrong, have them show you the plan go right, and then have it go wrong, right? So that way you know how it's supposed to work, or they talk it through like this is how it's going to happen. So they're talking through the plan going right while you watch it go wrong, and then you play it out from from some point of divergence on, right? That is a brilliant way to write a scene or a set of scenes. And that's exactly what they did here. And it was so perfectly well done. The pace was perfect. Everything that was going on. I mean, even to the the conductor as he was trying to, uh, he, he Arkin did his dirty business and he was trying to walk away like, and now I can go. Cause in his head, he had a plan. He knew exactly what he was doing. He goes to walk away and then he's like, nope, nope. What do you mean? Odd, oh, damn it. And so, like, everybody's plans. The only person whose plan... Actually, nobody's plan went right that episode. Not one... Not one character's plan worked out well that night. And I think that's actually pretty funny. The whole cast failed forward. 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I happen to be playing a character uh, not unlike Jesper uh, right now uh, in in uh, with with my uh, my character Aristotle uh, in a in a show that's going to be uh, on the channel here uh, soon. So uh, you will see how uh, how my interpretation of Jesper uh, and his ability to fail forward and to stumble into success unwittingly sometimes uh, is is played out. A you couple based of- him off of Jesper. Yeah. What's that? I said you based him off of Jesper. Not really, but sort of. I can see it, but I didn't make the yeah. connection at the time. That's why yeah. I was. Yeah. It's it, it's a different. T- it's he's not fully Jesper, right? No, no. He he's, is, he's the, honestly actually. You know what? Now that you say that, I see that a lot. Actually, I can I, now I really, too. It's just there's some subtle differences because it's a yeah. modern game. Yeah. Cool. yeah, which is funny because I actually uh, approached the character I I built in a lot of ways, kind of uh, a a myth. Yeah, a mix between uh, Mal and uh, Kaz. Like his, yeah, his criminal stuff is more like Kaz. But I was basically building a Mal. Like I'm just going to like that ind- indomitable will to succeed kind of thing, and always moving forward, always moving towards whatever my goal may be. That that's kind of how I structure that yep. character. And Glenn Travis is not unlike Inej with like the whole like the, the the killer aspect and everything like that. So that's kind of an interesting to Inej, huh? An sure interesting, okay. yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Right. You know, I mean, I I can see Travis walking around basically just with the hatchet, just like you know, taking care of business. Like, yeah, I can see that. Uh, all right. So uh, another couple of characters that I wanted to go ahead and talk about, and one that was so amazingly creepy, and I just wish that there had been a little bit more of the apparat. I thought that he had the opportunity to be again. So I'm, I'm sort of torn on this, right? Like, like in my heart, I wanted more apparat. However, my head looks at this and says, Nope. The reason why the apparat was so effective to you is because he didn't appear that often. And he only appeared at exactly the moments that he needed to be there. But I thought just like, as like, like that, like slippery sort of, uh, uh, minister of the court role was, uh, you know, the, the, you know, what's really funny is that. So the, the, the word apparat is a Russian word. So there's a lot of Russian influence in, shadow and bone a lot of it just from the language to the clothing to everything like a lot of a lot of a lot of like um uh imperial russian like czarist russia kind of influences and operat is a russian word meaning basically a, a device any sort of device is an, is an operat and so as like the gear that makes the kingdom turn he is just like that perfect slimy slippery court official that nobody really likes but everybody wants to know because they don't they they want to make sure that they're keeping him in their sights um and i thought that it was it was a genius role a genius a a, a really really great character played by kevin eldon who's basically for the most part a a comedic actor like for the most part he's god was it creepy Oh, so creepy. Yeah. He's so he's so good at being creepy. And, and Kevin Eldon is basically a comic actor. Like he's in like, you know. I definitely recognized him and he did an amazing job with that small little bit. But he was just so like he was he was uh It was off putting. <laughs> he was he was sleazy, the yeah. guy from your village, Lee. Yeah, Sleva. Uh, 
Which is exactly where I was going to go. So that's even a sleazy yeah. name. So <laughs> yeah, we, we call like, him I don't sleazy. even know him. And that's so, yucky name. <laughs> he's actually the one NPC from that game I have not told you a ton about, Josh. I think I might have mentioned him brief, briefly, but so much to say that that underling to the king, that secondary person, is such a trope. Most beautifully and perfectly done by Grimo Wormtongue from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. I was about to right. say Wormtongue from is, Tolkien. And, and yeah. Wormtongue is the largest influence on the character, that the NPC character I've developed for my uh, Northerners campaign, Sleva. Even even Varys from Game of Thrones. I mean, again, kind of that 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 mani- master manipulator that's in the – he's not in the right pocket, but he's certainly in the left pocket. No, I really liked Varys. Yeah, Varys a was a fantastic too. character who I think made a, an excellent turn in the middle of it because it finally got to the point where he was serving somebody that he couldn't get behind. And the fact that he was willing to sacrifice him because at any point, Varys could have easily got out of that. Like he could have at any point. He's the one guy who could have got out of anything. But even he said, this is, this is the line. Varys wanted what was best for the people. And he was willing to go to the stake for that, for that line. And I think that makes him a special kind of character. At some point, we'll get into that. But the th- sidetrack. But this show here, Apparat, was uh, just that creepy. I really thought he had shades of a couple different characters that showed up in Game of Thrones. He really fits that that trope so perfectly. And you're right. The reason why it didn't get to be too much was because he didn't show up too much. Just when you need him, and only when you need him. That is a masterclass in how to use an NPC for any storytellers out there. If you've got that type of character and it is perfectly okay to use that type of character, you have the collective permission of, of the gods of writing the words on paper and the gods of the game table to make that type of tropey character. Just know how to measure it. Little doses goes a long way. When he's called on, he's there. When it's convenient and you need to move the story in a certain way or move the story or create some tension, he's there. If it's not those situations, where is he? Oh, he's off doing a thing or we don't know where he is. He's only there when he needs to be there. That's a brilliant, brilliant way to handle an NPC of that type. Well, in Bodhi's opinion, Sleva is only there right up until he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Children of all ages, anybody listening to our show, my players really, really dislike my uh, second to the to the king or the chieftain, and they are all angling on ways to end him because because of his ways. However, he he has proven himself to be quite invaluable, and at least thus far, has not let his creepiness exceed his usefulness. <laughs> <laughs> That's. No, he's not proven himself invaluable. He's walked the delicate knife edge of keeping his creepiness from exceeding use, his usefulness. That that's just a brilliant line, frankly. Like, make sure his creepiness does not exceed his usefulness. Like, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Some other characters that you guys wanted to mention from Shadow and Bone here. Who? Anybody else that that tickles your ivories? I loved the training. I loved the training with his mom. Than the way that she approached Alina and, and and tried to, but yeah, I definitely want to just touch on Bagra again because we mentioned her briefly earlier, and I thought that she was an amazing character. She didn't have a huge amount of screen time, 
but what she had she sold every scene and it was like that's all she needed you know she was just so fierce and the way that she uh she trained the grisha that unrelenting demand with with like no mercy i don't care if this is making you sad you know she's just like relentless and then to find out that she's the darkling's mom all these years and oh my god look what my son did to the world and she's been plotting against him the whole time and trying to help defeat him amazing the actress she did an amazing job with the role and it was so much fun to watch her and the way that alina reacted to her it was great for me i want to talk about inez uh, played by Amita Suman. Again, relatively new, uh, but she's not a stranger to genre work. She's appeared on Doctor Who. And I got to tell you, I was drawn to her. She just had this subtle confidence. She just appeared when she needed to appear. She did the things she needed to do. But she uh, she showed skill and expertise just in her movement. It was so well-directed, so well-portrayed. But then when she tur- made that turn, she showed her fear of being brought back to that life that she was trying to get away from and her need to have Kaz do the right thing when she started growing in her faith, when she truly believes in the power of the Sun Summoner, I have to say that that was where I really fell in love with this actor. Like she was just so strong in her conviction that like she sold it. Like it was almost like the the, the crows were the audience vehicle. Right. Like we were watching the story of Mal and and Alina, but the audience was the crows and we shifted perspective. It was amazing. We shifted perspective at different times when we needed to. Right. We were we were we were naysayers just trying to get a job done, just kind of figuring it all out when we were Tez. We were having fun with it all, but being kind of getting things done when we were Jesper. And then we when we were as the show brought up Alina's power. And Starkov's power became greater and more polished, and it became she became more no, known. That's when we started seeing more of Inej, and we started getting more into her faith and more into her strength of faith. And I was just drawn to that. Like when she was on screen in those last three episodes, she was magnetic, like just magnetic. And I think that that was a serious strength of the writing team in structuring the story. So we shifted perspectives among the pros like that. And as, and, and as the story was followed, we got the right row for that part of the story. That's, that is craft of the highest order. YA or not, that's craft of the highest order. You know, that's deeper than I had looked too, but you're absolutely correct. They used Inej specifically as the vehicle to showcase the faith and the religion and the prophecy behind this all that this isn't just a random set of occurrences and i'm going to be honest she does uh her faith stays fairly central to her character all the way through the second set of books i love that you brought her up because she is next to jesper my second favorite character overall from the universe i just didn't feel like because she was used more as a vehicle Inej herself was showcased in this as much to bring her up but i love that you said she just appeared when she was needed and was gone again when she didn't. I love that you picked that up in the way that they did her because that is actually, it's almost a superpower of hers. When she doesn't want to be seen or noticed, she's not. It's not brought up or said ever in the in the actual show, but Kaz, who can't be surprised by anybody, senses her presence after she's there because she just pops in. And, and while it wasn't specifically said, Kaz's reactions to her appearances in the show displayed that perfectly. 
and they did a, the actors did a great job showing it and that's what i'm saying i love that you picked that up without it ever having to be said out loud it's one of the things that uh film has over written word is that you can create you can take what took a couple of paragraphs spread out through a couple of chapters threaded through masterfully by a writer and with a scene show it you know it's it's powerful and they did but a great job you have job. to do it multiple times if they'd only done it once wouldn't have picked up on it it's because it happened multiple times in some cases a couple times an episode but it was and it was the subtle facial structures because kez as a character and as he was portrayed is so stoic and does everything to not show surprise his surprise had to be in his eyes it had to be in a look or a twitch yeah it was you're looking at the camera and he had a slight head lift and his eyes widened yeah, just a little that bit. kind yeah. of thing is not easily done those are polished professionals who do that kind of thing that we can see on film uh, at the game table we have to kind of do that in different ways we have to describe that so we're back to being writers where we're going to use words to say these things because that's the way a tabletop game works and so we'll have to do that but as a storyteller Take a look at these facial features, these facial tics, these ways of expressing things. This is how you make your NPCs give imagery, right? You give imagery by the way they do things. So if you want your assassin uh, second to your big bad to see more badass, then have him do some of those things where, like, the big bad is a little shocked that he's there. Tell your players that you notice the big bad does this. Or even better yet, just give somebody an, an insight check. I don't fudge dice. I do not fudge dice. Occasionally, I may. Hmm. I do not fudge dice, but occasionally, uh, but occasionally, I make DCs much easier than they need to be. But on something like this, just so the players pay attention to it, I'll say, "Please give me an insight check," and I'll give it. I'll just pick one character at random. Let them do that insight check. Right? The DC is like five. I want them to get this, but I want them to pay attention to the fact that they're getting this. Right? So, barring a natural one. They're going to get this, right? They roll it, and I say, "You notice the big bad looks a little, uh, a little surprised, like almost like he didn't, he barely noticed uh, the appearance of the assassin." That tells them that the assassin is is incredible. Those are the types of things you can do at the table to get your people to have those types of feelings, so that your players pick up on these things as well. You can learn a lot from these shows. Uh, in the way they do things and find ways to translate them to the table. Well, let's try to put a cap on this one tonight. So Shadow and Bone, Netflix, eight episodes, very, very watchable, very, very entertaining, beautifully shot, wonderfully acted, music's fantastic. Really, it's a winner of a show, and I really can't wait uh, for a season two. So The one thing I didn't mention was just the costuming uh, for all our costumes. For all, oh, our, God, yeah. for all our cosplayer oh, yes. fans out there, the costumes were brilliant. The color scope on the Grisha uniforms, uh, it, it, when we first saw them, they stood out. It was on purpose, clearly. Uh, to, but like you could feel the texture. You could feel what had to be cold in the air based on the thickness of the fabrics being worn by the actors. And, and uh, I love me some cosplay. I have a couple Star Trek uniforms. I don't get to go to conventions as often as I'd like. I haven't been able to put on a uniform. None of my Star Trek uniforms fit quite as well as they used to. The the uh, Picard tug is basically so the belly doesn't show <laughs> at this point. But I can I can tell you this: gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous costuming 
uh, on that show. And just in general, the acting was really, really strong. Great young actors, newer to the, to the field, to the genre. Uh, so well done, so well produced, so much fun. Please go watch this show. If you have not already, please go watch this show. So I love that you brought up the costuming specifically because that's that's where I was going to go, not with the costuming per se. I really like the way they brought the world to life. It's not like they did a full third scale replica of Rohan for the pa- the panning, sweeping shots to bring it to life. They didn't need to go to actually bringing the environment of the world that the, this author has created to life. Instead, they're able to do it through the culture of the people through the military uniforms and the way that it's set up, the way their military units are designed, the type of clothing they wear, exactly like Lee was saying, and it leans right into the fact that, you know, there's a lot of Russian influence into the show, down to some of the attire and the way that the caps are made. They really, really used a lot of, again, stage theater elements to bring the story and the cast to life, as opposed to trying to rely on the background behind them and and food and food interestingly enough food was a big thing in the show like who here wants those waffles i i I want waffles i don't know anybody who doesn't want waffles yeah just how brilliantly they brought the show to life without having to do large sweeping landscapes or you know any of those kind of things yeah Nope. It was, it was so much character building. It was so much character interaction. That's all the world building that they really needed to do. And it was absolutely fabulous. On that note, thank you everybody for listening. Go out, watch Shadow and Bone if you haven't heard that. And you'll be hearing more about Shadow and Bone when we do the TCJ Awards show coming up in a couple of weeks here. So you'll be hearing more about that. Uh, in the meantime, thank you Only very much. Only if it for- earns an award. I mean, come on. Well, I mean, it's at least it's at least in the running. It's at least it's on uh, it's on a couple of the uh, of the lists for potential awards. So we may not for anybody you know, who listened to the episode, you know, it's winning something. It's, it's going to be winning something exactly. Yeah. So um, it, if nothing else, I'm sure that between between Ben Barnes as General Kerrigan, Jesse May Lee who plays Alina, best new show, and uh, potentially best new setting, yeah, it's it's going to win something. I'm sure. But that's a whole other. We'll get into the TTJ awards in more detail later. All that to go ahead and say. Go out and watch Shadow and Bone. You will not regret it. You'll enjoy. And thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Shout out to Marty for the guy that originally suggested we do an episode on it. Thanks, was Marty. Was this Marty? Yeah, I, I couldn't remember who it was. It was Marty? Okay. I, 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 I remember you started else. earlier and I meant to say it and then we got distracted. But he sent, me a, he sent me a Facebook messenger that basically said, Shadow and Moan would make a good side quest, just saying, or something like that. Absolutely. No, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patreon subscriber, player in our actual play, Marty Napier. So excellent. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. We will talk to you again next time. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. 
multiple episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series, where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.